the events of chapter 20 are most likely before the events of 18 and 19. Most likely, chronologically speaking, 20 happens before 18 and 19. But the reason the authors probably switched them is because, remember, the whole point of the book is Israel's decline in faith, their decline in obedience and going to exile. So the narrator, even though Hezekiah's lack of faith probably happened first, which is chapter 20, and then his incredible act of faith, 18 and 19, happens second, most likely the narrator switched those around and we're ending on a negative note with Hezekiah because he's trying to end on a negative note with the book. So he's intentionally like taking you down and down and deeper into your depression. In chapter 20, verse 1, In those days Hezekiah was stricken with a terminal illness, and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, visited him and told him, This is what Yahweh says. Give your household instructions, for you are about ready to die. You will not get well. So that's God's message to him. The prophet comes in and basically says, You're going to die. Get everything in order. That's really depressing. We don't know why he has this illness. There's nothing that seems to suggest it's judgment. It's just that he's going to die. Verse 2, his immediate response, like always, was he turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahweh. Please, Yahweh, remember how I have served you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and how I have carried out your will. Then Hezekiah wept bitterly. So Hezekiah is consistently turning to God over and over and over again. Now, he's not going to do this perfectly all the time, but so far he's done it more in two chapters than probably anybody's done in the whole book of Kings. So Isaiah is still in the middle of the courtyard when Yahweh told him, Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what Yahweh God of your ancestor, David, says. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Look, I will heal you, and the day after tomorrow you will go to Yahweh's temple. And I will add 15 years to your life and rescue you and this city from the king of Assyria. I will shield this city for the sake of my reputation because of my promise to David, my servant. And Isaiah ordered, get a fig cake. So he did as he ordered and placed it on the altercated sore and he recovered. So Isaiah basically prophesies, you're going to die. Get your house in order. He turns around. He starts walking out of the palace and Hezekiah immediately begins to cry out to God and begin to um, ask for healing. And before Isaiah can even leave the courtyard of the palace, God comes and says, turn around, go back, I changed my mind. I'm going to heal him. Because of his repentance, because of his, well, not exactly repentance, but because of his cries for help out to me. So he goes back, and then he gets a fig cake and puts it on the sore, or the, um, whatever it was that was going to kill him, and he gets healed. So that's an instant <laughs> prayer being answered. Hezekiah had said to Isaiah, What is the confirming sign that Yahweh will heal me and that I will go up to Yahweh's temple the day after tomorrow? Now, the other thing that's cool about Hezekiah, Hezekiah immediately knows that every prophecy requires a sign. Many, many, many people have failed to ask for a sign throughout the Bible. But Hezekiah is like, Yeah, but I want a sign. I need a sign. And so he says this, Isaiah replied, this is the sign from Yahweh confirming that Yahweh will do what he has said. Do you want the shadow to move ahead 10 steps or go back 10 steps? Hezekiah answered, it is easy for the shadow to lengthen 10 steps, but not for it to go back 10 steps. 
Isaiah the prophet called out to Yahweh, and Yahweh made Shadow go back ten steps on the stairs of Ahaz. So basically, he says, choose your own adventure. Do you want the shadow to go back or forward? And Hezekiah basically says, the shadow going forward is natural. The shadow always moves that way down the steps every single day as the sun sets or rises, whatever time of the day they're in. But for it to go back would defy physics. That's what I want. And God makes it. Now, there's no reason to think that God like rewinded the sun like a couple of minutes. It could have just been that he redirected the light on the shadow or whatever. So I wouldn't see this as a cosmic event, but it is definitely something that cannot be explained naturally. So God, for whatever reasons, made the shadow move, and he could do that without making the sun move because he's God. So I don't know how much to read into that on a cosmic level, but it definitely is a supernatural event, either way that you want to look at it. And so this is a sign that he will be healed. Notice that this is where we're specifically told that Assyria will not destroy Judah because of Hezekiah's faith. In 18 and 19, we're told that God would not destroy, destroy Judah because Sananacherah blasphemed Yahweh and put himself higher than that. Now we're being told it's because of Hezekiah's faith. That's significant. Chapter 20, verse 12. At that time... Merodach Baldan, son of Baldan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a gift to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah was ill. Hezekiah welcomed them and showed them his whole storehouse with his silver, gold, and spices, and high-quality olive oil, as well as his armory and everything in the treasuries. Hezekiah showed him everything in his palace and in his whole kingdom. Isaiah the prophet visited Hezekiah and asked him, Why did you say to these men? What did you say to these men? So the Babylonian king is from Babylon, right here at the mouth of the Tigris and Euphrates River where they empty into the Persian Gulf. And Babylon is a very, very, very close ancestor of Assyria. They are very ethnically, language, Everything, religion, very closely linked to each other. There's not much difference between the two of them except for politics, really. So they're here. Babylon stands the greatest chance of stopping the Assyrians and overthrowing them. And Babylon is the oldest civilization that's ever in, in all the history of mankind. So Babylon does not like the fact that the Assyrians have oppressed them. Now, Assyria has not oppressed them, Babylon, as severely as the rest of the world because of their close ties in a genetic kind of a sense. But they're still being oppressed. So they have not been deported like everybody else, but they are being ruled over by Assyria. And Babylon is seeking to overthrow Assyria. But there's not many nations that you can be an ally with when they've all been deported over the last hundred years or so. So Babylon has been going around looking for possible alliances. And one of the very few people that have survived and are not being attacked is Judah. And so he goes down to Hezekiah. Now, most likely, Hezekiah has nothing to contribute to Babylon in an alliance military-wise. But what Hezekiah does have is extreme wealth. And all wars require money. And so... Basically, 
he is going down there. And Hezekiah is also knowing that he doesn't have much of a military chance to stand up against Assyria. This is why he immediately begged for God to save them when, when Sennacherib was there. And so he knows Babylon is an army. So basically what he does is when the Babylonians come down, the envoys, he basically shows them everything. He is showing off. This is like the home and garden network. Look at my big giant mansion, everything I've done to it. And he's showing off the treasuries, the money, and everything. And what he's saying is, see, I'm worthy of an alliance. I have what you need and you have what I want. Okay, but what's the problem with this? He did not consult God and he's not allowed to make treaties with other people. He's not allowed to depend on foreign people in order for, for his protection. He should be trusting in Yahweh. So he is at the point where he is looking to the Babylonians to protect him. This is why Isaiah the prophet visits and says, What did these men say? Where did they come from? And Hezekiah replied, They have come from a distant land of Babylon. And Isaiah asked, What have they seen in your palace? Hezekiah replied, They have seen everything in my palace. I showed them everything in my treasuries. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Listen to the word of Yahweh. Look, a time is coming when everything in your palace and the things your ancestors have accumulated to this day will be carried away to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says Yahweh. Some of your very own descendants whom your father, whom your father will be taken away and will be made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, Yahweh's word, which you have announced, is appropriate. Then he added, at least there will be peace and stability during my lifetime. So God says, everything you showed him is now going to be gone. Now this is what's very interesting. The very act of Hezekiah's incredible faith in God is what spared them from the Assyrians taking them. But now Hezekiah's lack of faith in God is what's going to cause the Babylonians to come and take them. And so when this one chapter we have Hezekiah single-handedly sparing them from the Assyrians because of faith, but bringing Israel into Babylonian captivity later because of his lack of faith. And this is the irony here that is shown, is that one man can make a huge difference in a nation one way or the other. One way or the other. And that can quickly change at any moment. So Yahweh said, you're going to go in exile. Everything is going to be lost. Everything is going to be taken. Now, unfortunately, remember Hezekiah was a godly man, but he wasn't perfect. Selfishly, his immediate response was, well, at least it won't happen in my lifetime. That's not good, okay? Because you still have children and grandchildren and all that kind of stuff. And I've heard people say that like, well, who cares about recycling or taking care of the planet? I'm going to be dead by the time anything bad happens. And it's like, yeah, but you have descendants, you have descendants. I mean, even if you don't care about anybody else, at least you have descendants. This is the negative note that Hezekiah's life ends on. The rest of the events of Hezekiah's reign and all the accomplishments, including how he built the pool and the conduit to bring water into the, um, into the city, recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Judah. Hezekiah passed away and son Manasseh took, replaced him as king. Now, the tunnel is talking about is that Remember I showed you earlier in the book of Samuel where the city of Jerusalem had a spring on the outside of the city. And so the Jebusites who lived there before David, they had built a tunnel 
from that spring underneath the city wall and a shaft going up so that they could get water from the spring while they were under siege without leaving the city. And then they barricaded and stopped up the spring so nobody could find it. David was able to find the entrance to the spring, go through the tunnel and up the shaft and take the city. But then the city, when David, Solomon came along, they expanded the city and it got bigger. And then later kings expanded the city even more. Then Hezekiah expanded the city. And two of Hezekiah's great accomplishments building-wise was that Hezekiah built an incredibly thick wall, probably the size of like two or three lanes on 270 or on any highway width. That's how thick it was. He built this thick wall to basically around Israel, around Ju- sorry, around Jerusalem to protect them from the coming Assyrians. And you can go there to this day and see it. It's, it's not tall anymore. It's been torn down. But you can still see the width of it, foundational stones. So he built this. But as the city had gotten bigger, that meant that the spring and the water going through the tunnel only went through like a quarter of the city. So one of the things that he did was he extended that tunnel to the other side of the city. And what's interesting is he actually got, gave men pickaxes on one side of the tunnel of the city and pickaxes on the other, and they just kind of came and met each other in the middle of the city. So all based on math. I mean, that's all it is. All they have is pickaxes and math. Now, there's a couple places where you go through the tunnel. You can see where they kind of went off the wrong track for a couple of feet and had to back off. But even then, they only pickaxed about a couple feet in before they realized they were off course. So there's lots of theories of how they did it, but nobody knows for sure. So that's the tunnel that's talking about there. Chapter 21, Manasseh, his son, takes the throne. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of Yahweh and committed the same horrible sins practiced by the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the Israelites. So Manasseh did not inherit the faith and the devotion of his father. He is the longest reigning king of the southern kingdom. There is no king in the southern kingdom has reigned as long as he has. And he is king when he's 12 years old. So we can take a lot of guesses of why he turns out to be a total scumbag. His dad dies when he's 12. He doesn't have good much of an influence. But at the same time, by the age of 12 years old in the ancient culture, you were considered a man. You're considered fully responsible for your own life and way more mature than most 18-year-olds are in America. So whatever reason, there's no guarantee that your children will turn out well if you're good, and there's no guarantee that they're going to turn out bad if you're bad. So he turns out to be horrible. So horrible that he commits all the sins of the nations that were driven out. So basically, he's right up there with the Canaanites. He's right up there with the Canaanites. Now, so what did he do? First, he re- rebuilt all the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He set up altars for Baal and made Asherah poles, just like King Ahab of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars to Yahweh. See, sorry, he built altars in Yahweh's temple about which Yahweh had said, Jerusalem will be my home 
and the two courtyards of Yahweh's temple, he built altars for all the stars in the sky. So not only he has undone everything that his father's accomplished, he basically rebuilt all the high places, he rebuilt the Baal temple, he reinstituted um, sacrifices to the pagan gods, but now he's going even further than anybody's ever done. He is building altars to the pagan gods in the temple of Yahweh. So when you actually walk into the temple of Yahweh, among all the lampstands and the table of showbreads and Solomon's temple, all that kind of stuff, there's all these idols. So it is very clear at this point, the temple is definitely not good. The temple is definitely not good. And it basically says there was not a god that he did not build an altar to in Yahweh's temple. He has turned the temple into a hoarder's idolatry. I mean, it would be like, I don't... The temple is not that big. It's, it's only about like 90 feet. Okay? There's, and there's a lot of gods. A lot of gods in the ancient world. So I can see that temple getting filled up very quickly with just a bunch of statues and that kind of stuff. I can't help it. Like, every time I think about this, if you've ever been to St. Peter's Basilica... Okay, in Italy, it's like the most holy place in all the Catholic empire. It is filled with idols, absolutely filled with statues of idols everywhere, and idolatry and, and pictures and paintings of idols. And it's like this is considered to be the most holy church in all of the world, where the Pope himself is, and yet it is just filled with idols of all the Greek and Roman gods everywhere. Now, granted, it is an archaeological kind of a thing, but at the same time, there are plenty of other buildings in Italy that you can put that stuff in. You don't need to put in the church. And nobody's technically worshiping them, but they're all naked too. So it's just total nudity and idolatry filling the Catholic church. And it always just like left me very uncomfortable as I saw, I mean, they're really cool art, but at the same time, it's like, this isn't right. And that's kind of what we have here, but even worse, because this is Yahweh's temple. That's just a building over in Italy. Not only that, he passed his son through the fire and practiced divination and omen reading. So he sacrificed his children, and then he even went to other pagan gods and um, false prophets to find out what his future would be. He set up a ritual pit to conjure up the underworld spirits and appointed magicians to supervise it. Now, this is really bad because in the ancient world, the underworld gods are considered the really bad, evil gods. He did a great amount of evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. He put an idol of Asherah that he made in the temple about which Yahweh had said to David, Into his son Solomon, this temple in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will be a permanent home. Now remember, this idol was a very sexual goddess. So he's introducing that into Yahweh's temple. The temple in Jerusalem had chosen. I will not make Israel again leave, sorry, no tribes, and I will be a permanent home, and I will not make Israel again leave the land I gave to their ancestors, provided they carefully obey all I command them, the whole law servant, Moses ordered them to obey, but they did not obey it. And Manasseh misled them so that they sinned more than all the nations that Yahweh had destroyed before 
the Israelites. So at chapter 17, we are told that Israel had become like the Canaanites and they had made themselves worthless by worshiping worthless idols. Now we're being told that Judah has become worse than the Canaanites. Absolutely worse than the Canaanites. And to put that in perspective, once again, I mentioned this on the last time we got together, but these are the chosen people of God. This is the equivalent of you and I. This is the church. The people were supposed to be the image of God more than anybody else, and Yahweh is saying they have become more evil, more vile, and more idolatrous than any of the Canaanites that I drove out of the land. It is possible for the people of God to become worse than the world. It is possible for the people of God to become worse than the world. This is the warning to us. I've heard many people say, oh, but we're the chosen people of God. That can never, we will never go that bad. Yeah, we make mistakes as a church. No, 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 no. You need to read this. Okay? You, we can go as bad, if not worse, than the world. So Yahweh announced throughout his servants, the prophets, through his servants, the prophets, King Manasseh of Judah has committed horrible sins. He has sinned more than the Amorites before him and has encouraged Judah to sin by worshiping his disgusting idols. So this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. I'm about to bring disaster on Jerusalem and Judah. The news will reverberate in the ears of those who hear about it. I will destroy Jerusalem the same way I did Samaria and the dynasty of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem clean, just as one wipes a plate on both sides. I will abandon this last remaining tribe among my people and hand them over to their enemies. They will be plundered and robbed by all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have angered me from the time their ancestors left Egypt right up to this very day. couple things. First, when Israel was not trusting God, in the very beginning of 1 Samuel, God spoke to Samuel as a young boy in the house of Eli and said, Samuel, I'm going to destroy the house of Eli and I'm going to raise up for me a prophet and I'm going to do something in Israel that will make all the ears of Israel tingle. Reverberate. It's the exact same phrase here. And so what he did was that he demonstrated his power and his sovereignty by allowing the Ark of the Covenant to be captured and then destroying and defeating the Dagon statue in Philistine territory. Then the, the, the Ark of the Covenant was miraculously brought back with oxen that never leave their home and everybody began to talk about the amazing thing that Yahweh did and Samuel seized the reins and led Israel into a revival. And they begin to turn back to God. Now that exact phrase, that was at the very, very beginning of the monarchy. That was in chapter 7, and chapter 8 was when Saul was picked as the monarch. Now at the very end of the monarchy, we only have a handful of kings left. God is saying, I'm going to do something in Israel that's going to make all the ears tingle. I'm going to wipe you out. And take you into exile. I'm not going to demonstrate an incredible act against your enemy to liberate you. I'm going to do an incredible act against you 
to destroy you for your sins. And these two events are bookending this life of Israel. This is how far they have fallen. Now remember, God is saying, because they have done evil. This is a judgment for sin. Furthermore, Manasseh killed so many innocent people, he stained Jerusalem with the blood from end to end. In addition to encouraging Judah to sin by doing evil in the sight of Yahweh. I also want to tell you about how he killed so many innocent people. Now, what does it mean that he killed innocent people from one in, from every part of the city? Most likely, you know how when people die in car accidents on the side of the highway or something like that, and there's like these like crosses or like wreaths of flowers or just randomly on the highway every once in a while, and somebody's like restocking that every once in a while to remember how somebody died there. Or if you ever watch post-apocalyptic movies and they have walls of people who've died in action, there's a memorial, or we even have memorials in Washington, D.C., the people of the war. The idea here is there's not a street corner or a street where somebody does not have a memory of somebody innocently being killed by Manasseh. The idea is that everywhere you go in the city, you're going to be very close to a memory where somebody was wrongly killed by their king. It doesn't mean that Manasseh has personally killed them, but that his command is what led to the execution. And so the city is just full. Jerusalem, that was supposed to be the light of the world, a place of peace and hope where you commune with Yahweh, is now filled with memories of innocent people being massacred. It is no longer a place of peace. Jerusalem, city of peace is now a city of massacre because of what Manasseh has done to it. So he has completely, completely changed the face of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was supposed to be the city of peace. It was the place that Yahweh said, I will put my name, my character on that city, and that city will look like me and be a blessing to the world. Now it is filled with idols and is filled with bloodshed and massacre, and it does not resemble the character of Yahweh in any kind of a way. And this is why when we get to the book of Ezekiel, God's actually going to show Ezekiel his glory leaving Jerusalem, and he will no longer dwell there anymore. Chapter 21, verse 17. The rest of the events of Manasseh's reign and all of his accomplishments, as well as the sinful acts he committed, are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Judah. Manasseh passed away, and was buried in his palace garden, the garden of Uzziah. Uzzah, his son Ammon, replaced him as king. Now here's the sad point now. Israel's past the point of no return. It doesn't matter what godly people you have after Manasseh, they're going to exile. Judah's become so evil and so vile that basically... It doesn't matter how much people repent. It doesn't matter what revival they have. It doesn't matter how much things change. Judah is going into exile. And nothing that Judah does can change that. Chapter 21, verse 19. Abnon was 22 years old when he became king and reigned for two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meth, the daughter of Harzuz, from Jotba. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh, just like his father Manasseh had done. 
He followed in the footsteps of his father and worshipped and bowed down to the disgusting idols which his father had worshipped. He abandoned Yahweh, God of his ancestors, and did not follow Yahweh's instructions. Abnon's servants conspired against him and killed the king in the palace. The people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon, and they made his son Josiah king in his place. The rest of the events of Amnon's accomplishments are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Judah. He was buried in his tomb of the Garden of Azah, and his son Josiah replaced him as king. Now Josiah succeeds him as king. 